0: So we move on now to manuscript and print. Uh, you should get a handout. They're moving from the front to the back. Putting aside for the moment our interest in literary forms and genres, what is a 17th or an 18th century text? For us, if it's a novel, it's usually a paperback with the name of the author displayed prominently on the cover and on the spine. If it's a poem, then we normally expect to find it in print as part of an edited collection or anthology or online as an electronic text. And whether in physical or electronic form, we expect that the poem will have a title and that its layout will be clear and uniform. But these are not the forms in which 17th and 18th century texts were created and disseminated in the period. All of these forms, the paperback, the scholarly edition, the electronic text, All of these forms have their own structures on conventions, and they help to shape our understanding of 17th and 18th century texts in ways that their authors may not have envisaged or intended. Some authors of novels in the period were content to have their names appear on the title pages of their works, a strategy that modern paperbacks continue. But others invented fictional authors and even fictional editors to screen their real identities from readers. Some poets wrote with the aim of seeing their work in print and they were careful to correct and revise and stabilize their texts for contemporary readers and for generations to come. But many of the men and women who wrote poetry in this period had no desire to publish their work in print and instead chose to circulate it in manuscript. So what's now presented to us in regular lines on a printed page may originally have circulated in handwritten form sometimes without a title and often without any indication whatsoever of who wrote it. Scholars have long recognized that the material forms in which texts are written and transmitted play a part in creating their meaning. The French cultural historian Roger Chartier reminds us that no text exists in vacuum. And this is the first quotation on your handout. We need to remember that there is no text apart from the physical support that offers it for reading or hearing. Hence, there is no comprehension of any written piece that does not at least in part depend upon the forms in which it reaches its reader. In other words, reading and understanding are always to some extent conditioned by the material forms in which readers encounter texts. Many 18th century readers encountered poems in newspapers, for instance. In this context, the qualities that are likely to have stood out for readers are the novelty of the poems, how they fit with fashionable tastes, and perhaps their topical references, their relevance to the main concerns of the day. But the same poems printed in a book might take on new meanings. The book is a more stable and more self-contained format One that would have perhaps encouraged readers to consider the timeless qualities of the poems rather than their fleeting entertainment value. So Chartier continues, authors do not write books. They write texts that become written objects, which may be handwritten, engraved or printed and today electronically reproduced and transmitted. The space between text and object, which is precisely the space in which meaning is constructed, has too often been forgotten by the traditional sort of literary history that thinks of the work as an abstract text whose typographic forms are without importance, something that's easily available to us in scholarly editions or paperbacks. There are some awkward formulations here in Chartier's quotation. If a text is always a material object, then what exactly is the space between text and object? And I think this has something to do with Chartier's bias towards print. What he means here is probably something more like the space between manuscript text and printed object. But in spite of that, the basic point is a very important one. Texts don't exist in a vacuum and neither do authors. The nature of authorship depends on the material culture in which an author works. The role of an author who chooses to circulate their texts in manuscript is quite different from the role of an author who enters into the world of print. And later on in this talk, I'll look more closely at how the dynamics of authorship differ in manuscript and print. But before I do that, I want to briefly outline the development of the book trade in, Our period. This had a profound impact on literary culture, as I'll explain in more detail as I go on. It encouraged the rise of new literary forms, most notably the novel. It also changed the ways in which authors who wrote for publication thought about their status as writers. So the century from 1660 to 1760 was one of enormous growth in the production of books and other printed material. This was the era in which print established itself firmly as the dominant medium of communication. And on your handout are some estimates of the scale of book production in this period. Uh, Those statistics include non-literary as well as literary titles, literary publishing was in fact a fairly small percentage of the total output of the print trade. Those statistics show that in the latter part of the 17th century, there was a modest growth in the output of the book trade, but that that was followed uh, in the 18th century by a doubling of output between 1700 and 1780. The fairly unspectacular rate of growth from 1660 to the end of uh, the 17th century reflects the tighter, reflection, uh, tighter regulation of the trade in that period. The restoration of the monarchy brought with it the restoration of government controls on the activities of printers and publishers enforced by a series of printing acts. Raven explains that the first act of 1662 limited London printing houses to 24, including the three king's printers and one other special patentee. No print shop was allowed to house more than three presses or more than three apprentices, and the importation of books printed overseas was banned. Those regulations protected the interests of the established London trade, but they effectively placed a cap on production. They prohibited its expansion until 1695, when squabbles in Parliament led to the lapse of the Printing Act. Thereafter, any entrepreneur with the necessary capital was free to set up a printing house and the trade expanded both in London and across Britain. In this period, then, print became the dominant medium of literary production. But manuscript didn't disappear, of course. All writers worked in manuscript at some stage in the creative process, but some also used manuscript as a medium of publication for their work. Nowadays, we tend to think of publication as a phenomenon of print and as a commercial enterprise taken out of the hands of authors. But scholarly definitions of publication suggest that it can also be a manuscript phenomenon. It is, in essence, the act of making a text available to readers. And it's something that authors themselves can do. Harold Love, uh, one of the leading scholars of manuscript culture in this period, defines publication uh, in a quotation, a short quotation on your handout, as a movement from a private realm of creativity to a public realm Of consumption. So having completed a new work, an author might choose not to send it to a printer, but instead to send handwritten copies to family members, friends, or patrons, and that constitutes a form of publication. The author relinquishes ownership of the text as a private possession, as a work in progress, and makes it available to individuals and their networks in the public realm. So why did some authors choose scribal publication over print publication? A common answer is that the scribal medium enabled authors to circumvent the controls on print publication. From the passage of the Printing Act in 1662 to the 1690s, no text could legally appear in print without an official license for its publication. And offensive texts that did escape the censor could often be traced back to a printer or publisher, if not to the author. So there were significant legal ramifications for printers and authors involved in producing texts that were deemed to be libelous or seditious. By contrast, scribal texts could be produced and circulated without the knowledge of the authorities. And this is why manuscript was the medium of choice for satirists writing to criticize and abuse those in power. The reigns of Charles II and his successor James II produced an outpouring of satirical verse that achieved a wide circulation in manuscript. Some of this verse was written from the perspective of parliamentary and popular opposition to royal policy and the affairs of the court. And the best known practitioner of that vein of oppositional satire was Andrew Marvel, whose career as an MP in the 1660s and 1670s ran in parallel with a career as the author of scribal satires. But other writers of satirical verse moved in the same circles as their royal and aristocratic targets. The Earl of Rochester took part in an intimate and highly charged culture of writing and circulating manuscript verse at court. Rochester's first readers were his friends and fellow courtiers, and he claimed to value their opinion far more than he would the acclaim of a popular audience. One of Rochester's later poems, An Allusion to Horace, is a reworking of a Horatian satire and an attack on Rochester's most celebrated contemporary, John Dryden. Unlike Dryden, who in Rochester's eyes craved the applause of vapid and fickle theatre audiences, Rochester claims to have no interest in carting popular praise. I've no ambition on that idle scar, and this is a quotation from your handout. I've no ambition on that idle scar, but say with Betty Morris, here too far, when a cart lady called her Buckley's Haw, I please one man of wit, I'm proud of it too. Let all the coxcombs dance to bed to you. So Rochester draws a parallel here between his position as a writer and the position of a woman like Betty Morris, the mistress of a courtier, And in doing so, he emphasizes the social nature of his role as an author working exclusively in the scribal medium. Both Rochester and Betty Morris are striving to maintain relationships with men of wit. They're both social creatures. And this pinpoints a vital aspect of manuscript culture. Being an author outside the world of print is not just about gaining freedom from the censorship of the press, it's also a profoundly social activity. (coughs) Authors entering into print rely on booksellers to distribute their work to anyone who will pay for it, but authors working in manuscript rely on social networks to circulate their texts. They rely on people sharing works with friends, making their own copies and distributing them. And these social networks do more than just circulate texts, they also remake them. Every time a text is copied by hand, it can be changed, and often is. And the evidence of surviving manuscripts suggests that readers took an active role in correcting, adapting and censoring the texts they copied. What this means is that the texts we call Rochester's are, for the most part, somewhere between the creations of Rochester and the creations of his readers. As Paul Hammond says of poems by Rochester and his circle, and again, this quotation is on your handout, in some cases, it becomes difficult to say who the author of a poem is, because copyists have added and rearranged material, and all we have is the variant copies. We can't necessarily say which is the version that the author originally wrote. Authorship becomes collective, and it may be that one should see the circulation of poems in manuscript as an implicit invitation to readers to adapt them. So this activity by readers wasn't necessarily a violation of the author's wishes. It was something that authors anticipated and implicitly approved. So manuscript collapses the distance between authors and readers. And this means that we need to think carefully about whether we can or should read Rochester's verse as the expression of a coherent poetic persona or even as the work of a single individual. Our sense that Rochester is an author with a definable oeuvre and that by reading Rochester, we develop some sort of connection with one of the most notorious figures of the restoration court that sense is really a product of the posthumous reinvention of Rochester as a print author and of course the subsequent work of scholarly editors to try to produce as close as possible to definitive texts of Rochester's works. Some of the earliest print editions of verse supposedly by Rochester included illustrations of scenes from Rochester's life encouraging readers to interpret the text biographically as keys to the life and personality of the author. And there is uh, a terrible reproduction of one of these illustrations on your handout. Uh, It comes from 18th century collections online. Um, But it's interesting because it shows Rochester on the right in conversation with his biographer, Gilbert Burnett, uh, the churchman, on the left. And it gives us this intriguing suggestion that Rochester was at least open to orthodox religious ideas, and that might well have influenced the way that 18th century readers understood the poem that faces this edition, uh, this illustration in the original edition, which is a satire against man. This is quite some distance from the way that Rochester intended his poems to be circulated and read. Rochester himself chose to circulate his texts in manuscript, a medium that would obscure his identity as an author. Most copies of Rochester's poems in manuscript do not identify him as the author, and a medium that also encouraged readers to remake his texts. So Rochester's legacy is not just that of an individual author, but also the legacy of a whole scribal culture of reading and writing in manuscript. One crucial difference between authorship in manuscript and print that I've not mentioned yet is money. Authors who chose scribal publication were giving their work away for free, whereas authors who sought publication in print at least had a chance to earn some money from their writing. But the financial prospects for authors working in manuscript and in print were not as different in this period as we might expect. Certainly, in the earlier part of the period, the rewards of print publishing were not enough to make writing for the press a viable career choice. Publishing opportunities were too few and too poorly remunerated to generate even an insecure livelihood for an author in the 17th century. In 1667, John Milton sold the copyright in Paradise Lost to his publisher for the grand sum of £5. Pounds. Um, Unusually, he also secured a kind of royalties agreement whereby he would be paid a further £5 in the event of successful sales of a later edition, but this was hardly riches. So to be an author in the 17th century required either an income from some other source or a willingness to chase after the rewards of traditional patronage relationships or an ability to diversify. The theatre was an attractive option for authors in need of ready money because a successful run in the playhouse might generate multiple paydays before the play was even in print. Authors could be paid for the rights to the performance and the rights to the print publication. Authors also dedicated their work to aristocratic patrons who might help them to obtain an official pension or some sort of paid government position. But the conditions of authorship in this period were changing rapidly as a result of the commercial expansion of the book trade. As we've already seen, there was a huge increase in the volume and variety of print publications from the late 17th century onwards, stimulated by the new freedom of the press. And there were more opportunities than ever before to write for the press and to be paid for it. Authorship uh, from around the early 18th century became a viable profession. And this was doubly unsettling to traditional conceptions of the role of the author within literary culture. First of all, if authorship was an economic activity, then a successful author was someone who knew what the market wanted and catered to its appetites, not someone pursuing a creative vocation as authors had professed to be doing in the past. And secondly, what the growing market seemed to want were new forms of writing in addition to the old. And professional authors played an important part in developing these new literary genres. And the most important of these new genres was the novel. This was the period of the first fictional bestsellers. Robinson Crusoe was first published in 1719. And within six months, it had gone through four editions. Also in 1719, Eliza Haywood published her first prose fiction, Love in Excess, and a new edition followed roughly every year for six years. The novel posed a challenge to the familiar hierarchy of literary genres, which was rooted in the classical traditions of poetry and drama. The burgeoning market for novels also created opportunities for authors like Haywood to carve out a niche for themselves as literary professionals. Haywood was the most productive female author of the 1720s. And because her name sometimes appeared prominently on the title pages of her works, and there's an example of one of those title pages on your handout, uh, Haywood's fiction was one of the most recognisable literary products on the market in the early 18th century. In this new world of books as business and authors as professionals, many writers feared that traditional literary values were being lost. Some of the greatest satires of the early 18th century are inspired by this fear that if money becomes the driving force of literary production, authors will abandon the discipline required to produce works of artistic and intellectual distinction, and publishers will encourage mindless consumption of texts rather than careful reading and absorption. And there's no more brilliant or more complex articulation of these fears than Alexander Pope's *Dunciad*, originally published in 1728 and revised and reissued several times before Pope's death in 1744. Pope suggests that money has already corrupted the literary world. And like many satirists in this period, he traces the source of this corruption to a particular haven of bad writers, Grub Street. Grub Street was a real place, but for Pope, it was also symbolic of the world of the professional author, a place of constant production with no quality control and no interest in the higher forms of literature. And the final quotation from your handout is from the Donciad, um, describing the products of Grub Street. Hence, hemming Tyburn's elegiac lines, hence journals, medleys, mercuries, magazines, sepulchral lies are holy walls to grace and new year odes and all the grub street reigns. Many of the publications that Pope (coughs) mentions here, and I could spend a lot of time unpacking these lines, but I won't. Uh, Many of the publications Pope mentions here, the execution elegies, Tyburn's elegiac lines, the journals, newspapers, Uh, the New Year Odes by the Poet Laureate, they're all linked to particular occasions or dates, and the implication is that once those dates have passed, they will simply be thrown away and forgotten. This is the kind of literary production that publishers thrive on in the new commercial order of things, a constant stream of products with topical sell-by dates to keep readers coming back for more. So this was a period of enormous anxiety about the impact of print on cultural values. Besides the Donciad, Swift's Tale of a Tub and Dryden's Mac Fleckno also engaged satirically with the culture of print and the kinds of authorship that it enables. But for others, the growth of print created new and exciting opportunities. Novels and periodical journalism emerged from this moment of expansion and innovation in the marketplace. And for authors, the profession of writing offered a new route to cultural influence and authority. Thank you.